Wow. I feel like we've already heard a great message this morning. And in fact, you didn't really leave me a whole lot of time, you guys, um, to do my message. But I think I can do it. I think we can be out of here by 1230. So um, freedom works. Freedom works. That's what we're talking about this morning. And, and actually, there are, there are two aspects of this title that we're going to be talking about. The first one, um, how does it work? We're going to be answering that question. Like looking at the schematic of a car engine or a circuit board on a computer. What, what connects to what? What's the foundation? What are the key essentials for the operation of this thing? We're going to be, we're going to be digging into Paul's letter to the Galatians to answer questions like that. Um, something else, another aspect of this title here, Freedom Works, is the fact that, that we're going to see that freedom works. That it does work. It, it works in your life and it works in my life as we are changed and uh, transformed by Jesus Christ. Um, I've heard this statement now from two different people in two different states and I know for sure that they, neither of them know each other. And, and this is what they say. They, they both said, that they are satisfied customers of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Satisfied customers of their relationship with Jesus Christ. What that basically means is that, that it works. That there, is, there is so much stuff that's happened in their life in the past, and, and it's because of the power of God in their life that, that it is what it is. And, and they're satisfied with that. Why? Be, because He provides us all things that we need. Uh, he does. Um, it, it, it just works. It's true. Um, people's lives are changed and are different because of Jesus Christ. And, and the changes that have been made, they wouldn't trade anything for those changes. I wouldn't trade a billion dollars uh, against what I have in my life because of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of people in this world that would give a lot for a billion dollars. I would not trade my relationship with Jesus Christ for a billion dollars. Why? Because it works. Because it works. I've experienced it. I know that to be true. So I would encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter 1 with me as we begin. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, I have verses 1 through 10. We're, we're going to touch on the first five in depth and uh, just roughly breathe, um, breeze over the last few verses. And uh, actually next week, you will not want to miss next week because because this week ne- this week will make a lot more sense if you come next week. So just a little bit of a teaser to get you back here uh, to continue in the uh, series with us. Um, now, it's important to have the correct information in our lives, isn't it? It's, it's rather important to have correct information. Um, there was this lady that worked for a, a medical hospital, a local hospital, and she said, one of my patients was an elderly man with a thick accent. It took me some time to understand that he had no insurance coverage, she said. Um, but one thing he had made clear was that he was a World War II veteran. So I had him transported to the Veterans Administration Hospital where he'd be eligible for benefits. But when I got back to work the next day, there my patient was waiting for me with a note from the VA. And the note simply said four words, right war, wrong side. Now, that's a a piece of important information that she should have had. Okay, we need to have the correct information. Um, It's also important that we base our understanding on truth and not just on opinion. Now, um, if if you get your fill of Bill O'Reilly on the factor um, in the evenings, you would know that he says, here's what I think, a lot. Now, he's a smart guy. I, I, you know, I'll give him that. And he does his research. 
But when he says, here's what I think, it's not necessarily based on fact. It's just his opinion. And we need to be cautious that we um, base our lives on truth and not just opinion. On the first day of school, a first grader handed his teacher a note from his mother, and the note read this, the opinions expressed by this child are not necessarily those of the parents. It's true. It's, it's true. How many times have you wondered, what is my kid really telling those people when they're out of my house? You know, um, it, It's important that we have the truth. And so Paul begins uh, his letter with answering some questions that some people may already have about who he is and where he gets his authority. So the first point in your notes this morning, we're going to talk about the who. Paul's unique authority. Paul has a unique authority. Why should we submit our lives to what Paul says? Why, why should this book of the Bible have any authority in your life and in mine? Um, some of those who read the original copy of this letter may have wondered the same thing. So Paul, what he did was he answered that question before they even asked it. Verse 1, look there, chapter 1 of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. So the first reason that Paul has a unique authority is that Paul is an apostle. Paul is an apostle. Now, generally speaking, the basic definition of apostle is just somebody that has been sent. Someone that has been sent. That is the general definition of an apostle. And in the Bible, we see two different types of apostles. One I'm going to call a general apostle, and one I'm going to call a particular apostle. Now, the general um, apostle, the, the difference comes from whom the apostle is sent. Who sent the apostle? Um, in the general sense, an apostle was someone who was sent on a mission from a church or from a group of people. Um, our kids were all kind of apostles in a sense that we sent them on a mission. Scott is, and, and Jill are headed back east, and then Scott's going to Honduras as an apostle of sorts. Being sent, now you're kind of going on your own, but we're kind of sending you too. We'll be praying for you and supporting you in that. Um, it, it, at its foundation, an apostle is simply someone who was sent. Now, the, the uh, Greek word for apostle that Paul uses here is apostolos. Okay? One who is sent. Um, here's a couple of illustrations of people with general apostleship. Philippians 2.25 Paul says this, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. The word translated messenger there is apostolos. Okay? He has been sent to you. We have sent him there. Um, this same word is used in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. As for our brothers, they are representatives, apostolos, of the churches and an honor to Christ. They have been sent by the churches. We have sent them. We're the ones that put them on their way. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that's not where my authority comes from. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul has authority because he was sent by God. He was sent by God. Paul received his marching orders directly from God himself. Now, if you're not that familiar with Paul, let me get you up on his life just a little bit. Okay, Paul wasn't always a Christ follower. He didn't grow up in a Christian family. Um, he wasn't raised in the church. 
in fact, quite the opposite. And Paul wasn't always Paul. Um, early on in his life, his name was Saul. And after I tell this story, you will kind of get a little bit of why it was important for him to change his name. Um, if you would, turn back a few uh, books of the Bible to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And when we arrive at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, what's happened is the, the news of Jesus Christ is growing. There are becoming many disciples throughout the region. Um, but, but along with that increase of the members, there's this increase in opposition of members of the Jewish synagogues. And in, in their opposition, they seize Stephen, who's, who was one of the, the chosen seven disciples. You can read about his life earlier in Acts chapter 6 and 7. They seize him and they subsequently stone him to death because he's proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was God and that he rose again. And that is the only way to heaven. That's what these disciples are proclaiming. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, And Saul, who wrote the book of Galatians, approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. These are the inner workings of Paul's or Saul's life. The cogs of his purpose early in his life was the destruction and imprisonment of people who would proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what his goal in life was. Then something happened. Turn over to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly... A light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And his response to that was, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So Saul comes face to face with Jesus Christ. And his life is forever changed. From that moment on, his life was forever changed. Now, there's a subplot in this story. In Damascus chapter 10, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias is saying, are you crazy, Lord? Don't you know who this man is? Of course the Lord knows who this man is. 
He's the one who has sent him there. But Ananias is a bit nervous about this. But the Lord says to Ananias, he affirms him, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer from my name. That's where Paul gets his authority. Right there. From God. From Jesus, literally from Jesus Christ himself. Paul has received the call on his life. And in the following years Paul's life, of Paul's life, he receives many directives. He, he receives directives of where to go. He, do, he receives directives of where not to go. What to do, what not to do. Who to speak to. And we see uh, throughout the history of Paul's life that it's not an easy life. It's a very difficult life. Um, he, he has this, um, this imperfection in his life that he struggles with and prays that the Lord would remove it and God chooses not to. He's shipwrecked. He's persecuted. In fact, he's, he's imprisoned. But in, all, in, in the midst of all of this, the number one thing in his life is living for Jesus Christ, his Savior. Why is he willing to do that? Because he knows it's real. He's experienced it. It is his foundation. And in the midst of all of that, Paul finds himself content. He finds himself content. We're going to look further into Paul's apostleship and personal conversion next week as we go on through chapter 1. And I would encourage you um, to study along with the series. You know, just don't come and, and hear Galatians, the second half, for the first time next Sunday. Read it this week. Read the first chapter. Maybe read the whole book. Um, go online. Pastor Ty continues to produce great studies and, and second looks at the sermon on, online. You can go to northhillsbaptist.net, click on second look, and there's a video. It's about ten minutes long, and he gives you his discussion guide, and it helps you approach the passage from a different perspective. Please study along with us. But I was reminded this week of what Paul said in Philippians 4. 4, 11 through 13. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That was written in chains, in prison, between guards. He's content no matter what circumstance, because his foundation is Jesus Christ. The third thing in this section here is that Paul is humbly serving Jesus. Sent by Jesus Christ himself, Paul and all the brothers and sisters are in agreement with him, are holding strong to the truth themselves and imploring us to do the same. They're imploring us to do the same. When it comes to the gospel, Paul's not trying to please people, he mentions this fact in verse 10, if you look at that. He's not swayed by the powers of the church or the political powers of the day or pressures by people because he is a servant of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. Um, he is living out the words that Jesus spoke to Peter in John chapter 13, verse 16, when Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Paul never gets self-righteous. He is a servant to Jesus no matter where he is and what he's experiencing. He is a servant and Jesus is the master. You as a Christ follower are the servant. Jesus is the master. I am the servant. Jesus is the master and no servant is greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So the who is Paul. So the who is Paul 
and he has a special authority. And his words have authority in our lives because he was an apostle, he was sent by God, and he was humbly uh, obeyed, obeying his calling. Now his message to us this morning is incredibly greatness. Uh, and he tells it rather concisely. In fact, this is the first Sunday of the month and we are celebrating communion this morning. We are celebrating this good news that Paul is telling us about. Paul, Paul we've, I've said it before, Paul is a Christ-intoxicated man. Everything he does is influenced by his relationship with Jesus Christ. So number two in your notes this morning is the what. And the what is the gospel. It's the gospel. Paul says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. People, you, you guys are adding stuff to this message. You're changing it and it's not right. You need to stick with the foundation of what you've been taught. And then he tells us exactly what that is. We're going to talk about what some of those other gospels are next week. But Paul, the what Paul is writing about is God himself. He is confronting the Galatians and anyone else who sits in the same um, type of situation or categories that he covers in his letter with some correction, and it's some pretty stern correction. Um, more on that correction next week. This morning we're talking good news. Um, this is important. Paul repeats it over and over in every letter that he writes in the book of Romans. He writes it about it in there. Why? Because it's the truth. And it's the foundation of everything that we believe. To the churches in Galatia, look at verse 3, Galatians chapter 1. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that last line. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why? Why glory to him forever? Well, the first reason is because Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Now, I heard a story of a man who appeared in a court because he had committed his third DUI and, and the consequences were going to be harsh and he appears before the judge and it turns out that the judge is his father. Now, I, I don't know if this has actually happened, but it's a great parable or illustration to, to make the point. I, don't think, I, I would think the father would have to recuse himself, but in this case, he doesn't. And everyone in the courtroom is wondering what's going to happen. Is he going to be lenient? Um, is he going to be a true judge? Is justice going to be served? And um, both sides present their facts of the case. He had done wrong, and with the crack of the judge's gavel, he declared the son guilty, and he sentences him to six months in jail. That was the consequence for his actions. Justice had been declared. But then what happened next, nobody saw coming. The judge stood up from behind the bench. He walked down, walked down to the floor. He took off his robe. He hung it on a hook. And he walks over before his son stands in front of him, holds his hands out and says, I am going to substitute myself to serve the six months in jail that I have just sentenced my son to. That's what Jesus did for us. It's exactly what he did. There were consequences to sin. And God is a just God, and they can't go unpunished. But what happened was Jesus Christ stepped into our place, and he took the punishment for our sin. He took the brunt of that.
When we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we become a Christ follower. A transfer of sorts is made. Jesus has taken our place. Martin Luther comments that these words are very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of righteousness. That is, all forms of self-righteousness. Once we have seen that Christ gave himself for our sins, we realize that we are sinners unable to save ourselves, and we give up trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. Christ died for our sins. We can't save ourselves. It's only in him that we can be rescued. Rescued from what? Subpoint number two, Christ died to rescue us from the present evil age. John Stott describes this this way. From what does he rescue us by his death? Not, one, not out of this present evil world, which originally this week, that's kind of what I was kind of thinking about. For God's purpose is not to take us out of the world, but that we should stay in it and be both the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But Christ did, died to rescue us out of this present age of wickedness. The New English Bible says it that way. Or, as perhaps it should be rendered, out of this present age of the wicked one since he, the devil, is the Lord. Let me explain this. The Bible divides history into two ages, this age and the age to come. Eternity. It tells us, moreover, that the age to come is already here because it was ushered in with Jesus Christ. When he came to the earth, he established and began the age to come. So the two ages are running parallel at this moment. We, we are living in a special time. All of those people in the Old Testament, the age had not come yet. The age has come for us. We are living it alongside the old age. So the two ages are running their courses in parallel. Christian conversion means being rescued from the old age and being transferred into the new age. Okay? The age to come. Okay, and, and, and write this down. And the Christian life is living in this age, the life of the age to come. And, in, and the Christian life is living in this age, the life of the age to come. Grace and peace and hope and mercy, we experience that now. We can every day. We are experiencing the age to come today. Because why? Because Jesus started it back then. What a gift. What a wonderful thing. And Paul wants to make sure that we have the basis of this down. Christ died for our sins. Christ died to rescue us from the present evil age. And Christ died according to God's will. This is an amazing thing about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's this inner working. There's this interaction between them. Jesus died because it was the Father's plan. I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane just before... Christ's crucifixion is recorded in Matthew 26. Jesus begins to, to be sorrowful and troubled. He's beginning to sense the impact of what's going to happen. Not just the crucifixion and the death, but the impact of all of that sin that he is going to be absorbing. Your sin and mine. When he is on that cross. And it says in verse 39, He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The gravity of his situation is upon him. He is about to go from sinless perfection 
to experiencing the pain and agony of taking on all of the sin of the world. Three times he prays that there might be another way. Again, in verse 42, it says, He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Whatever your will is, Father. And then verse 44, it says, So he left them and he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And if that doesn't want you to jump up and down and say, Praise Jesus, I don't know what does. If... If, if you don't have this overwhelming sense of thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me, um, I think you need to take a second look at your, your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is incredible news. What an incredible sacrifice. What an incredible act of love. John fifteen thirteen, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this to lay one's life down for another. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. So my question for us in, in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the service this morning, what I want us to do is, is respond to that message. I want us to respond to this. Maybe, maybe for you this morning, it's belief. Maybe it's this recognition finally this morning that, you know what? Jesus is real. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus wants to be my Savior. And it's a surrendering your life to Him. Maybe that is your... Uh, response this morning. Another response, we're going to respond in communion. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus Christ and, and the juice represents the blood that He shed, all of it. And, and, and Jesus said that we are to proclaim His name until, the, until He returns again. And He hasn't returned again, so we're going to continue to do this. Let's celebrate His goodness to us, His sacrifice for us, the forgiveness and grace that we experience the joy and the contentment that we have because of Him in our life. We're going to worship and praise. Um, the worship team is just going to play for the next 10, 15 minutes. And we're going to sing. And, and I want you to praise Him. I, I'm going to be praising Him for the safety of our kids and our leaders that came home from Pine Ridge. That's one thing this morning that I am so very thankful for. Um, whatever it is in your life that you, you are thankful for, let's praise Him this morning for rescuing us. And then also during that time, uh, uh, Rob Randolph, our, one of our elders and myself, he'll be over there and I'll be over here. If, if, if at any time, as, as Ty is playing, um, you feel like you need somebody to pray for you, come up. If you need to come up and kneel at the altar, come up and kneel at the altar. Um, you don't have to give us this big, long story. Just say, I need prayer for my relationship or for my family or for a job or whatever that is. And we would love to pray for you. Don't be shy about it. It's no big deal. You're not confessing sin to us this morning. You're asking for prayer this morning. Please, let us pray for you. Um, so, Ty, come up. Let's begin. Um, again, at any time, at any time, even if we're taking up the offering at the end and you haven't taken communion yet and you still need to, you come forward. These tables will be open. The altar's open. We'll be over here to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your good, good news. And Lord, I thank you for calling Paul to bring us the letter of Galatians. And I pray that you would teach us as we submit ourselves to the authority that you have given it. And Lord, I pray that our lives would be changed. And this morning, as we close this service, oh, Father, help us to open our hearts and our minds to you in worship, in celebration of your sacrifice in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that, that you love us deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.